Thank you again for joining us for this podcast of the National Academy of Public Administration. The Academy's offerings are made possible in part by supporters like you. If you or your organization would like to sponsor future podcasts, please contact the Academy at development at napawash.org or give us a call at the number listed in the description below. The Academy also offers a free daily electronic newsletter, which you can find in the description as well. Thank you for listening. You have to continue to provide the basic services because those are what deliver legitimacy in the eyes of your residents. If you're good at picking up the trash, if the, if the tap water is clean and it works, all those sorts of things, then when really big, terrible things happen, citizens have confidence. They believe that you know what you're doing and, and they grant you legitimacy. You don't get it just because you happen to be the city manager or the mayor. You got to earn it about every other minute and a half. Welcome to Management Matters, a National Academy of Public Administration podcast where policy meets practice. I'm Terry Gurton, president of the Academy. In August, we focus on our grand challenge to build resilient communities. And in this episode, my guest is Mark Funkhauser, former mayor of Kansas City, Missouri, former publisher of Governing Magazine, and an Academy Fellow about what it takes to create livable and resilient communities. Mark, thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, happy to be here, Terry. Thank you. Well, let's start with, with where you started. You've had a long career in local government in Kansas City. How'd you get started there? I was in the state auditor's office in Tennessee leading the performance audit group, and I thought that the fun and the action was in local government. And so when I saw opportunities to be a city auditor, I started applying and I managed to get myself hired in Kansas City and uh, served 18 years as the city auditor there before I decided to run for mayor. Well, so you started by saying auditing was fun and that there was action packed. So I just want to lay that out there because that might have been some motivation for running for mayor. <laughs> well, it it was. Um, I was at a meeting at GAO on December 2nd, 2004, when I heard a bunch of experts talk about the financial condition of the United States. And it made me wonder what would happen to Kansas City. And so when I got back to Kansas City, I began to formulate plans to do a kind of a financial resilience thing, similar to the stuff that JAO was doing. And I ran into a lot of opposition uh, from the elected officials uh, whom I worked for. And I got uh, censored by the mayor for insubordination. Uh, and I thought, well, we'll see about that. <laughs> and so I took an early retirement and ran for mayor. Well, so clearly you had um, some inside information. What did you find most rewarding and most challenging about mayor when you actually got the job? Well, one, I completely underestimated how difficult it was. It's a lot harder. I have came away from that. That was my postgraduate education in um, American politics. And I came away with a much more profound respect for elected officials. This stuff is hard, and it's only gotten harder. When I look at the last 
uh, 10 years or the last five years uh, for local government, whatever I thought I was going through, they're going through 10 times that much. Um, but what what motivated me to run for mayor was I felt uh, you know that we were not paying enough attention to basic services, treats, sewers, cops, you know, and we were not paying attention to financial issues in the way that we should. Well, certainly, I mean, you just mentioned financial resilience. Um, and as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, we're talking about building resilient communities this month. So when you think about a resilient community, certainly given your experience and local government, how would you describe it? It's a community that is able to continue to deliver on its core mission of supporting residents despite the inevitable shocks and disruptions that come. We tend to treat each of these things that happen as if, oh my God, how could that possibly have happened? It never happened before. And yet, if you look at, say, from um, you know 9-11 in 2001 to today, there have been uh, a couple of dozen world-changing events. And of course, most recently, the pandemic and uh, the recession related to it and, uh, and, and those sorts of things. So it's being able to continue to deliver on the mission, no matter what. Well, I, I'm really glad that you gave it such a broad definition, because sometimes I think we, we talk about resilience and we only think about it in relation to weather, right? Are you able to survive a catastrophic weather or, or climate event? So this idea that a resilient community really is um, a group of people who work together to, to meet the needs of their constituents is, I think, a much more functional way to think about it. When you take that broad definition, though, what tools do local government leaders have to address the various aspects of resilience? The place I would start is fiscal responsibility. You're going to be, whatever happens, whether it's an earthquake or a pandemic or tremendous social unrest, uh, you're better off with a fund, starting with a fund balance of 35% than you are of 3%. And in addition to having the financial resources, if you've been prudent and, and smart with your cash, your, your um, basic infrastructure is in good shape. Your streets, your bridges, you know, your sewers, all that sort of stuff is, has been well-maintained. It's in good shape. Uh, your staff are adequate. You have an adequate number of staff. They have the right skills, and they've been trained and you've invested in them, you've invested in their training, you've invested in their management, uh, they have state-of-the-art technology and equipment. Those are the kind of things that you have to have. Many years ago, I uh, was at the University of Kansas at a, an event on the future of the city manager, former government, and Tom Downey uh, was asked what the future uh, for city managers would be. And he made what I thought was a profound point. You know, he named all the things that had happened up to that point, you know. And he said, you have to continue to, to provide the basic services because those are what deliver uh, legitimacy in the eyes of your residents. If you're good at picking up the trash, if the, if the tap water is clean and it works, all those sorts of things, then when really big, terrible things happen, 
citizens have confidence. They believe that you know what you're doing and, and they grant you legitimacy. You don't get it just because you happen to be the city manager or the mayor. You got to earn it about every other minute and a half. Well, you make a really profound point there. And then that's what all of our, all of the trust surveys tell us, right? That people trust their local governments because they do exactly that far more than they trust state or federal levels. When you were mayor in Kansas City, how did you deal with these kinds of basic service deliveries? Did you focus on resilience in that way? Uh, I focused on our core responsibilities. You know, I, I said, you know, we're going we focus on public safety. We focus on on basic infrastructure, and we avoided um, what I would call the silly stuff or the you know the symbolism. I told you earlier, I, I anticipated a, a crisis, a financial crisis, when I ran for mayor, and it came. <laughs> I I was in office about six months when the Great Recession happened, and so it was pay the bills, pay attention to the balance sheet, build the balance sheet, uh, and deliver on the basics, and listen to residents. I did 116 town hall meetings as mayor. But Kansas City came out of the Great Recession in better financial condition than it went in. That's quite an accomplishment. It, uh, I have the scars to show that. <laughs> Well, as you think about living through and, and governing through that kind of crisis, that kind of challenge, how did you work with other levels of government? Did you find that they were helpful in addressing the resilience of Kansas City? Actually, yes. Now, there's a, there's a historic tension between um, the levels of government, the local, state, and federal and it's only gotten worse in the last couple of decades. And it was there when, when I was in office. But when the Obama administration came with ARA, and now President Biden was vice president, the feds did uh, a really good job of reaching out to and listening to local governments. We did like biweekly calls. And that sort of thing, uh, there was a lot of support. There was not as much as we would have liked. They gave a lot of that money to the state to give to us. And uh, that was, we would rather have had the money directly. But it was fairly strong cooperation. And since I came into office as a uh, political independent, you know, I was mayor of a very blue city in a very red state. I was blessed by the fact that people uh, who cared about fiscal responsibility thought I was a Republican, and people who cared about social services and social issues, as I do, thought I was a Democrat. Uh, <laughs> and, and I didn't disabuse them of the notion on either side. And I spent a lot of time going to Jeff City you know, and asking for help, and going to D.C. and asking for help. And we got... We got our share. Well, it's only gotten harder, sort of, as you mentioned up front, to tie all of those pieces together. Do you think that um, the, the COVID recovery programs, the CARES Act, the ARPA Act, the Infrastructure and Investment and Jobs programs, are city governments using those funds now to address resiliency challenges? I think they are. You know, the... 
we did a lot of work, my little company, on uh, each of those. We did uh, uh, what we call playbook, where we reach out to folks and interview them about what they're doing and how they're doing it, and what the challenges are and what, what their successes are. And especially the CARES Act, I thought some key lessons were quickly picked up on by local governments. Um, one uh, that we identified is that the associations like NACO and NLC and GFOA were extremely helpful and they've continued to be helpful. And so they were a tremendous resource. On the one hand, advocating for local government with the federal government, and on the other hand, uh, educating and interpreting for uh, local government what the rules were, which you know, in some cases they were daunting. I thought that the money, as an auditor, I was pleased that there was almost, particularly for CARES, not a whiff of scandal, uh, much like ARA in, in the Great uh, Recession. The money was spent the way it was supposed to be spent. And there were lots of examples of um, resilience. Uh, cities, local governments shifted gears very quickly. I mean, we all know how they went to virtual meetings almost overnight, uh, remote work, and on and on and on. And there were big challenges that, uh, in a million things that could have gone wrong, and maybe only 10,000 did go wrong. <laughs> Percentage-wise, that's a small number. <laughs> you know, one of the things we hear about investing in resilience is that it's it's easier for people to understand that when it's a response or a recovery to an event than it is to plan for investments that mitigate the impact of those events. How are communities dealing with that challenge? Well, it is a challenge. And yes, it is hard to explain to people that, you know, we should build this levee higher. We know that there has never been a flood that has topped this levee, but that does not tell you what's going to happen in the future. Um, and when we consider the level of destruction and loss of life and property that would happen if the levee were overtopped, we think it makes sense to do this. That's a hard thing to explain to people, but you can do it. You have to, you, you know, I believe you have to treat people with uh, respect and dignity, every, every citizen, and you have to do your level best to um, explain to them why, why you're doing what you're doing. You value their opinion and, and they're not always going to agree and it's not always going to work, but it is. It is a tough challenge, but people are smarter than we give them credit for, I believe. And they will They will get it. The, the, those sorts of things, I think they're seeing now that things are happening faster. They're coming faster. I think uh, I'm, I'm going to do a, um, a workshop at uh, the end of this week on anti-fragility. And I'm currently obsessed with anti-fragility. Uh, but basically, the world is more interconnected than it ever has been, and events happen more quickly and with, with more amplitude. There will be bigger floods. There will be bigger pandemics. There will be, you know, look at, look at the war in Ukraine and, and what the impact of that has been on the global supply chain and on food supplies and so on. 
So you have to, I believe as, as local government professionals, you should be uh, focused on that sort of thing and, and thinking about how you'll respond if this happens and that happens and something else. Well, I want to follow up on that because certainly when you were mayor of Kansas City, I would imagine you had a pretty robust staff, well-trained. You obviously had um, capacity to deal with your state government, to approach the federal government, but lots of small communities don't have that capacity. And then the pandemic's made it even worse as we hear about shortfalls in government staffing and the rules around some of these big federal aid programs can be really complex. You made the point that a well-trained, well-staffed community is better able to deal with these kinds of things. How can we help small communities build the capacity both to manage these kinds of aid programs, but to think about an intentional resilient strategy within their community? So you make a very good point, uh, and I, I interview local government officials just about every day, and uh, I ask them what their priorities are and what their challenges are, and staffing is a huge uh, challenge. And yes, the, the good news is with the federal uh, grant rules is they are doing a much better job in the rules of requiring reporting on outcomes, which is something that's critical. On the other hand, that's more daunting for local governments. That's what right. to do. And so you can do uh, several things. One, you should pull together with other communities. So in interviews that I've done down in Florida, for example, uh, several of the city managers and communities in Seminole County said that the county had taken the lead in organizing them. And they were having like bi-weekly Zoom calls and so forth about what they were doing, trying to pull resources and coordinate with each other. Uh, I heard the same sorts of things in Adams County, Colorado. So, and I talked to, for instance, I did an interview uh, with the city manager of Dallas. And he said that he and the city manager of San Antonio and El Paso and a couple of other what he called the big five, basically talk to each other regularly about what they're doing and share ideas and share information. Uh, and then, of course, there, there are, as I said, the professional associations. And then, that, you know, part, that's what there are various consultants, including me and my little company, who that's what we try to do. Uh, one of our uh, people, uh, Liz Farmer, has uh, essentially made herself an expert on the federal grants and federal reporting. We have partnered with a group called the Drucker Institute that does sort of management training and strategy and so forth. And we bring the fiscal uh, responsibility and the, and the federal funds analysis to that. And uh, currently we're working with the city of South Bend, but that's the way to do it is to, is to be reach out for help. You're not alone. Sometimes easier said than done, isn't it? <laughs> Yes, it is. Well, we've been talking about resilience kind of in a broad way here, but I want to drill down a little bit. You mentioned that you're running your own consulting firm, and I know you recently hosted a six-week cohort where you partnered with engaging local government leaders and AARP to examine livable communities. So tell us, like, what does livability entail and how does it connect to resilience? Well, so uh, a livable community is one that is safe, 
and secure. People can, uh, all different kinds of people can find uh, a place to live that is adequate. They can get around the community. There are economic opportunities for them. AARP has a, an index where you can sort of measure the, uh, you pick a zip code or a community and you can measure on their index, uh, the livability of that community. And, and so that's the, and, and the connection to resilience is, is that communities, it, it comes back to that basic services thing that I talked about where the legitimacy is built up. Communities that are more livable tend to be growing uh, in population. They tend to uh, be stronger uh, financially. Uh, livability is highly correlated with uh, almost all the various indicators of economic success for a community. Uh, one of the people that, that I collaborate with, read, think with a lot is Michael Hicks. Michael is with the Center for Business and Economic Research at Ball State University in Indiana. And he has done, a, he's a regional, you know, he's an economist who focuses on regional economy. And basically, his work shows that, you know, the sort of traditional, quote unquote, business friendly stuff does not work. That what works is investments in livability, that places that uh, where people are comfortable, they like it, they, they feel like the amenities are available to them, they pay higher taxes. And so the kinds of things, you know, the, the tax rate is higher, and yet the bang for the buck that citizens think they're getting is higher, and they're more likely to move there, and they're more likely to create jobs there, and all the sort of positive things that you would want to have happen. And it's right before this podcast, <laughs> I was doing a Twitter exchange with uh, one of the experts at, who spoke at that, um, at that cohort, Angie Schmidt. Uh, and Angie has written a lot on mobility. And she posted on Twitter a video of she's at an intersection on her bicycle in downtown Cleveland and the cars are whipping by, it looks absolutely terrifying. And she's like, how, uh, how are people supposed, how would you cross this street with a small child? How could you ride your bicycle across it? And so on. You look at that, and to me, that is, that is a microcosm of livability. And, and so I said to her, again, through the Twitter thing, much like we did in the, in the cohort, what would you do to fix this? And it's simple stuff. It's fix the walk signal. Give pedestrians a head start with the walk signal. Give them a 15-second head start over the cars. Build up the curbs because the cars, because the curbs were uh, virtually non-existent, the cars can make a much um, faster turn. You know, if, the, if there's a high curb that's going to hit their wheel, they have to slow up to make a 90-degree turn. And, and so those are the kinds of things. We're not talking about $50,000. Now, it would be nice if the transit system were better and all those other kinds of things. Uh, but those, those kinds of small changes 
make, a, you know, and they impact three or four different things. They impact mobility. They impact my ability to get my kid to school or daycare. They impact my ability to do shopping. I don't necessarily have to buy a car, which is a huge investment, and on and on and on. So there's this, uh, we, we in, in a piece that we wrote about that, uh, we said, you know, that the funding is siloed, but the impacts are not. And, and this, this is a kind of thing that I did and talked about a lot in, in, uh, in my time as mayor, which is to take, be smart with the money and take places where you can leverage a small amount of money into a significant impact. So you mentioned ratings on livability and that AARP has a system. And I'm wondering, as you've watched the migration patterns of COVID, do you see people moving from less livable places to more livable places? And do the lessons that your cohort shared apply in those cases? I, I don't think they're necessarily moving from less livable to more livable because the subset of people who are who are really moving uh, are those who do remote work. And you it's we have to remember that about 70% of the workforce does not do remote work. <laughs> they either during the worst of the pandemic did not work at all, or you know they pick up the trash, they prepare the food, they 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 do all those sorts of things. They're the police, the firefighters, the EMT workers. Uh, they're the kind of people um, sewer repair, bridge repair, maintenance. Um, you know, so so there's all that kind of thing. The, the people, those of us, uh, I remote I do remote work, those of us who do remote work, uh, yes, uh, we are moving and we're taking our dollars with us, but not necessarily the more um, livable communities. Uh, we're, we're going places where we can get a bigger house and have a nicer home office and, and that sort of thing. I mean, I see you know, a lot of people leaving Manhattan and going to the Hamptons. Those are, those are not. <laughs> I was thinking more about Nashville. <laughs> well, I, I think it's the, I think it's the same sort of thing. So I don't see a pattern yet. Okay. But you do see pretty standard practices for how local communities can increase their livability. Absolutely. Yes. You know, uh, a critical thing, and again, I go back to Angie Schmidt's tweet of uh, 30 or 40 minutes ago, walkability is absolutely huge in terms of livability. If I can walk to the daycare, if I can walk to work, if I can walk to the grocery store, I suddenly have a lot more economic freedom and, and life. You know, I'm not spending my time in a car. And so... Uh, and I've written about the walkability thing, um, both in this uh, in this cohort that we did, but in another piece where I uh, there's a there's a huge group called Walkable Boston that you know things like is there a public restroom that I can go to? Is there, are there benches? Is there shade? Uh, those sorts of things make a big big difference. And the extent, and if there's more walkability, 
then there's more foot traffic for retail and maybe a little coffee shop can spring up and so on and so on. Maybe I don't have to have my car to go get groceries if it's close enough that I don't have to make a a weekly trip. I can go every other day. Well, I totally resonate with what you're saying. Um, We chose a walkable community and it's changed our lives. So I I get it. Um, Just sort of as we wrap up here, if you were giving advice to mayors or city managers who want to address resilience and livability issues in their community, what would you tell them? Uh, I would I would say start looking for those kinds of things. I'll go back one more time to the to the uh, tweet that Angie Schmidt put up. Look for those kinds of things. Look for what makes it difficult for people to live in your community. And listen to the community a lot. Listen to them a lot. If you're not already doing surveys, you should be doing them. Man, try to meet the community where it is. You know, go to the places they are. They're not going to be able to come to your um, seven o'clock in the evening public hearing. One of the things that we did see in the pandemic is when we went to virtual meetings, the turnout increased. Things that we thought were really dull and boring, like the city budget, went from five people showing up to 50. So I would, you know, listen, pay attention to the money. That's, to me, my my background in the finance, but pay attention to the money uh, and talk to other people. Talk to, talk to your colleagues. Uh, I learned so much from other mayors. Those are, those are people to listen to. Mark Funkhauser, thank you so much for that practical advice and for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you, Terry. For our listeners, check back every Monday for a new episode from the Academy as we work to build a just, fair, and inclusive government that strengthens communities and protects democracy.